This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by University of California Press, which has loads of great titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Menace to Empire by Moon Ho Jung. Menace to Empire is a profoundly ambitious history of race and empire that traces both the colonial violence and the anti-colonial rage that the United States spread across the Pacific between the Philippine-American War and World War II. Moon Ho Jung argues that the U.S. national security state as we know it was born out of attempts to repress anti-colonial subjects from the Philippines and Hawaii to California and beyond. Jung examines how revolutionary movements spanning the Pacific confronted U.S. empire and how, in response, the U.S. government closely monitored and brutally suppressed them, exaggerating fears of pan-Asian solidarity and sowing anti-Asian racism. Racialized as threats to U.S. security, peoples in and from Asia pursued a revolutionary politics that engendered and haunted the national security state the heart and soul of the U.S. empire ever since. Menace to Empire, out now from the University of California Press, and coming soon to an interview here on The Dig. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. We've come to take the pervasiveness and power of right-wing fanaticism rather for granted these days. And yet, for much of the 20th century, liberalism and Keynesianism were triumphant, and the basic contours of the New Deal order seemed inviolable. On some level, that was true. Unions represented a large share of the American working class, and income inequality was suppressed to historic levels. And it was Richard Nixon, after all, who, just a decade before the Reagan Revolution, created both the Environmental Protection Agency and the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. But as we've discussed in various prior interviews, the New Deal order was never as secure as it seemed, even at its apex. Black people lived under racist despotism in the South and were subject to housing and school segregation and labor market exclusion and marginalization everywhere. Right-wing evangelicals were already mobilizing. The Cold War had organized domestic unity behind an anti-communism that meant suppression of the left and radical unionism at home and bloody imperialism abroad. And, as I discuss today with historian Kim Phillips Fine, Businesses and businessmen were from the very beginning organizing to destroy the New Deal and the power of organized labor, and to spread the gospel of the free market and neoliberalism in their place. We are discussing Kim's incredible 2009 book, Invisible Hands, The Making of the Conservative Movement from the New Deal to Reagan. Before we get started, you likely want to know more about Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine right now. If you haven't listened yet, listen to my recent interview with Ukrainian sociologist Volodymyr Ichenko and my 2019 interview with Tony Wood about the historical origins of Putin's Russia. I will link to both in the show notes and express my solidarity to the Ukrainian people and to the Russian anti-war movement. If you appreciate what we do here at The Dig, please make a modest monthly contribution at patreon.com slash the dig. 
That's how we make it happen and why we don't have to use paywalls to raise money. What's more, a contribution of any size at all, even $1 a month, gets you our weekly email newsletter. If you contribute $10 or more, we will send you a book or books in the mail or a dig tote bag or coffee mug. If you depend on this podcast for ruthless criticism and analysis of everything everywhere, please hit pause right now and take a quick moment to support us. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Okay, here's Kim Phillips Fine, a professor at the Gallatin School of Individualized Study in the History Department of the College of Arts and Sciences at New York University. She's the author of Fear City, New York's Fiscal Crisis and the Rise of Austerity Politics, and Invisible Hands, The Making of the Conservative Movement from the New Deal to Reagan. Kim Phillips Fine, welcome back to The Dig. It's great to be here. You write that, quote, The rise of conservative politics in post-war America today is one of the great puzzles of American history. I think that today and also at the time you were writing the book, we already sort of took the rise of the new right almost for granted. What, if we step back and denaturalize it, makes the ascent of conservatism so puzzling? I think that to see it as puzzling, it's necessary to recognize how confident the liberal politicians and writers and thinkers of the mid-20th century were laissez-faire, free-market approach to economics and political life had been discredited by the experience of the Great Depression and the rise of fascism and Nazism in Europe. And there was a widespread sense in the 19 the late 1940s the 1950s and for much of the 19, for the early 1960s that anybody who would think of dismantling key elements of the welfare state was really out of touch and was kind of a, a throwback a reactionary somebody who didn't understand how the world worked any longer and I think the so the strength and confidence of the liberal order at that point is, you know, it's part of why there's a, you know, what, what happened to it? Where did it go? How did we get to a point where things, the common wisdom seemed to have moved so far away from what it was then? You know, and I think it's not just a common, you know, I think that we're thinking about a time when labor unions represented about a third at the peak of the American workforce, when there were a set of assumptions about the expansion of the government. And I think, I guess, one of the aspects of this is that part of the reason it's a mystery or seemed like a mystery to a generation of historians is really that it also that confidence and that hubris wasn't only something that the figures of the mid-20th century shared. It was also a perspective that a lot of historians and scholars shared. And so the sense of triumphalism was also present in the way that 
historians wrote and thought and talked about the period. So in, in certain ways, it was, well, in in the reality of mid-century society, it was never as complete as people either claimed it was at the time or to some extent thought it was afterward. You write, quote, Historians and social critics often explain the successes of conservative politics by pointing to the backlash against victories of the social movements of the 1960s. But if one looks beneath the surface of the post-war years, it is clear that the liberal consensus on matters of political economy was never absolute. Even at its zenith, liberalism was far less secure than it appeared. That reminded me of another story of the insecurity of at liberalism's zenith told by Tom Segrew in Origins of the Urban Crisis, racial segregation and urban deindustrialization, nurturing white racist reaction while also undermining the economic basis of the New Deal years before the rise of black power and the new left. It sort of emphasizes the inability to reconcile the racialized class divisions and exclusions of the New Deal order. And there are a lot of other stories about what happened to liberalism, too. Your story is about business reactionaries who were working, quote, toward a goal that seemed impossible at the time, to turn back the central institutions and the reigning ideas of New Deal liberalism and revive an age of laissez-faire. How does this business story fit into other sorts of histories we know that emphasize real estate, deindustrialization, desegregation, and urban working class and suburban middle class white reaction? Where, where do capitalists as a class for, the, for themselves fit in? That's a great question, and I think you know the origins of the urban crisis in particular is a extraordinary book and one that deals a lot of the scholarship on these questions and themes. I think also of Jefferson Cowie's book Capital Moves, which is about deindustrialization. But much of the there, there's a, a tremendous amount of amazing historical writing about this period and dealing with a lot of these questions. And I think that where Invisible Hands fits in is that there is, it was writing partly um, against, so that there is a, a popular narrative, I think, which Sugru is taking on as well, about the explosive politics of the late 1960s being the, the, the shattering liberalism. And this is drawing partly on some older books like Alan Mattisau's The Unraveling of Liberalism, but also on punditry and popular perceptions. And I think in a way it's a vision of history in which the real threat to liberalism became the new left, became black power, became the weathermen, and the turn, the, the kind of the, 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 it's often depicted as, and I think, you know, all of these movements are actually more complicated than this, but what's depicted as the rejection by the left of the norms and civility of mid-century politics, a turn towards violence, towards extremism in different ways. I think that, you know, feminism and gay rights are also kind of wrapped up in this, and a sense, a sense that this extreme politics produced and is responsible for a backlash. Um, it's responsible for, as Sugru writes in Origins of the Crisis, it, it was writing against this narrative, but people kind of say that 
the you know the white middle class left Detroit, you know, after the uprising in, in the late 1960s. There's uh, you know, and, and similarly, reasonable white middle class people fled the Democratic Party as the Democratic Party became more associated with anti-war politics. And I think there's a sense of well, you know, it's placing the locus of blame on the radicals and sort of saying, well, they misjudged the situation. They alienated all these people who would otherwise have been solidly within the democratic consensus. You know, what else could they do? They had nowhere else to go. They had to leave. And so that's, I think, one of the narratives that we have about where did the right come from? What happened to ideals of government? What happened to unions? The answer for hovering out there is the sense that the extreme politics of the left are what drove it away, kind of shattered that consensus. And I think that Invisible Hands and a lot of these other books are kind of taking that on and in, in a different direction. And I think it's actually helpful to that this book was written over the course of the early 2000s. I actually started working on it really literally right after 9/11, and it was written out of it was kind of coming out of the 1990s and the triumphant free market politics, communism is dead, the Cold War is over, sensibility of that moment. And it was motivated partly by a sense of the real gap between that rhetoric and the real and evident social problems that remained. And I think one of the things that I was interested in was the a, a sense that um, a kind of, of who has social power, who are the people who are making things happen and wanting to look at conservatism, not just as a kind of sudden, angry backlash, and also not just as a reaction to the excesses of the left, but instead reflecting something of a much more long-standing set of ideas and institutions built by people who had access to money and social power. So I think that was part that, that's the, what one of the things that Invisible Hands is doing and other people have have done this also since but there's a is trying to shift the focus away from a populist reaction and to say something else was happening as well. Um there is also this elite resistance to things that people thought were widely accepted but actually were never fully accepted by business people and who had been mobilizing against them well before the cataclysms and crises of the late 60s. Who amid the the Great Depression and the early years of the New Deal were the business reactionaries? Because you write, quote, the most farsighted and liberal of the business leaders, particularly those in consumer-oriented industries such as electronics and garments, supported the Keynesian New Deal programs that they thought would raise the wages of workers and hence create more disposable income, stimulating mass consumption. And the free trade agenda of the Democrats appealed to some financiers and oil barons, whose labor costs were low enough that higher wages did not seriously endanger their profit margins. 
Was there some sort of material basis to the pattern of businesses and businessmen that resisted the new deal? And if there was, did those patterns change over time as the New Deal proper transitioned into the long era of the New Deal order? Or were the politics of a business or businessman more contingent on the ideological peculiarities of the people who owned and ran ran businesses? Right. Well, I think this is um, another another kind of uh, tension that runs through the, the book. So, so there are some historians and, and political scientists like Thomas Ferguson who have written in a lot of depth about the division, material divisions between in the, in the capitalist class and how they play out politically. And Ferguson has argued that much of the resistance to the New Deal during the 30s really came, and then actually subsequently as well, but especially in the, in the 30s, came from, as one might kind of expect, companies that had high labor costs and relatively low capital investments. So textile companies were at the forefront, he would say, of resisting the New Deal. Whereas oil companies, which have very large capital costs and lower labor costs, were more able to accept and work with what you know, they, they, it didn't matter as much to them whether or not they their workers were unionized. It didn't have as direct or immediate an impact on their profit margins. My methodology in Invisible Hands was rather different because what I was doing was um, I wasn't kind of taking a full survey of where campaign contributions were going or there was something more um, – I was approaching it more through – looking at the organizations and institutions and seeing who was active in them and looking at the papers of people who kind of politically active business people. So I actually find, I think, a lot more contingency and a lot less immediate material calculation than other people who have approached this topic. And so during the, the the New Deal itself, a lot of the people who were most intensely active in, for example, the American Liberty League, which was one of the business groups that formed to challenge Roosevelt and the New Deal, were the DuPont family. And the DuPonts, you know, they, they are a – there's a, a lot of elements to their wealth, but they don't exactly break down they're, they're, they have a lot of capital investments and also labor costs. And, and similarly, General Motors and people from General Motors are quite involved. There's obviously intense resistance to unionization from the Ford auto company. The steel companies are very resistant to unionization and become active in some of the anti-New Deal politics. I think as you go into the post-war years, you do see a lot of the leaders of this movement are small to mid-sized manufacturing companies, privately owned businesses that are, um, are you know, employ, are, are have a, an industrial base and employ in the hundreds, but not the tens of thousands of people. So kind of mid-sized companies play a very important role in conservative politics after World War II. But I think during the Depression itself, the situation is a lot more fluid. And I guess I was always interested in 
I, 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 was, I, I think one of the, this is one of the themes of Invisible Hands is that this type of really strong reaction against unions and against an expansive state is articulate something that many business actors, a sensibility that many possess, whether or not it comes to the forefront at a particular moment in time. So I think, and so that even if suppose, well, so it, it, a small company might be at the vanguard, but it still resonates with something that even actors at a larger company who you know are dealing with their union, but they still nonetheless have this resentment and frustration at the situation, and so might help the smaller manufacturer in a particular labor battle or might contribute money to um, a more forcefully free market organization. So I, I think that that was a, a theme running through Invisible Hands. And then there are companies that change sides too, like General Electric during the 1930s is definitely one of the companies that supports aspects of the New Deal. But General Electric after World War II becomes one of the leading companies kind of agitating against it so or against the New Deal order. So I think there's a – I do think that somehow my book has a greater sense of contingency and was also interested in the kind of ideology. It's not just interest, that there's a – at different points, just that there's a – a long-term interest that business people or capitalists have in a certain kind of political economy, even if they can accommodate or cope with it in a shorter-term way to accommodate unions or higher taxes or a welfare state. Um, And even if it makes pragmatic sense for them to do so, there's also always going to be a strong pull of their interest that is skeptical about this because of the the shift in political weight that it carries. Yeah, the the DuPonts are a great example of the contingency at play because there was so much about that family that depended on their ideological peculiarities and that can't be neatly explained by simplistic material determinism. You write, quote, the goods that rolled out of the DuPont factories were the emblems of modernity. And they also made a huge amount of money from the U.S. government thanks to making weapons for World Wars One and Two, And the family lived in this kind of aristocratic, hyper-opulent style and also, quote, practiced benevolent paternalism in the workplace. And as you write, as you mentioned, they were vociferous early opponents of the New Deal. And they gathered fellow businessmen together to create what they described as a, quote, property holders association, Yet, revealingly, as you mentioned, they decided to call it the American Liberty League, a defender of the general American interest in liberty rather than the interests of capitalists in particular. But at the time, they couldn't escape their association with a ruling class that during the Great Depression was in severe disrepute. What did the American Liberty League endeavor to do and why did it fail so miserably? Well, the Liberty League is trying to well, a couple, a couple of different things that it tries to do. So it's just trying to gather. And I think it also, what you say about the disrepute of business at this moment is important to um, hearken back to, because I think part of the 
another argument in Invisible Hands is that the Great Depression became a real a legitimation crisis, as people would sometimes describe the 1970s later, that the prestige of business during the 1920s, well, if you go back to the, 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 the 20s and the end of World War I, there is, kind of prior to World War I in the United States, there's a, 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 it's a, a very vibrant and contentious, radical scene. Um, you have the IWW, you have the Socialist Party, you have different kinds of anarchist organizations. And this is coming out of the late 19th century and the consolidation of capitalism at that moment. And all of it, the, the, these new gigantic corporations, the movement of people from the countryside into the cities, the um, the emergence of a financial system, all of this is, is new. Nobody knows what's going to happen to it. Nobody knows whether or not it's really going to last. It's a kind of contested space. Everything is. And after World War One, there is a you know a crackdown on the left. There are many following the Bolshevik Revolution, and this is partly the the sense you know it, it reflects a, a new sense about the dangers of radical politics and a framed in national security. There's a crackdown on the left. Many people are deported and arrested, of course. Um, there's also a broader kind of uh, rejection of unions and employers. There's, there's really not any mandate to bargain with the union at this point, no legal obligation of an employer to do so. The labor movement is broken at the end of World War One, And those things are in the background, I think, of the 1920s. And the celebration of business during the 20s, the surge of the stock market. For the first time, the stock market becomes something that's not just the province of a tiny elite. It doesn't really, it's different than what it is today, but I think about 10% or so of the American population becomes, um, starts to own stock. Retail investing becomes something that upper middle class people can engage in. It still is not widespread, but it's non- it has a, a place in popular awareness that's very different. It's the age of welfare capitalism and companies organizing social events, baseball teams, all kinds of things to try to invest their workers in the identity of the corporation. It's the moment of the invention of advert, kind of the expansion of advertising and public relations. So there is this way in which business has a very prominent role in public culture during the 1920s. And the onset of the depression, the collapse of the stock market, the inability of companies to sustain their welfare capitalism programs when times get tough, all of this leads to a real crisis in what the, the, the capacity, and, and I guess most of all, the, the fact that a lot of these business leaders did not have a positive a program for the Depression. The program was liquidate everything, let wages fall, let prices fall. Eventually, the bottom will fall out and it'll be profitable to invest again. That was their program, and it just did not work in the early 1930s, things got worse and worse. And so I think that crisis of the image of business and the sense that there was, is part of what's, what's happening here. And there's, you know, there are different radical mobilizations in the early 1930s, a sense of unrest and Liberty League formed a couple of years into Roosevelt's first term is a response to that and an effort 
first, I think, to bring business people together, to get them talking with each other about this political crisis that they are facing, and to start to try to shift the power back. And yes, I think that the Organized Liberty League, what they actually did, so I think first of all, it's important is just kind of trying to rally business together and to start to say, we need to work together to do something. What to do exactly was less clear. What they actually did was first, they produced a lot of pamphlets and other kinds of propaganda attacking Roosevelt and the New Deal. So that was one thing that that Deliberate League did. Another, it, it helped to finance a lot of the lawsuits that were challenging different parts of the New Deal. So looking to the Supreme, looking to the courts and to ultimately the Supreme Court to reject different aspects of the New Deal. And then finally, there were parts of the Liberty that became active in the 1936 election, trying to back um, Roosevelt's challenger, Alf Landon of Kansas. But I think that the Liberty League didn't really want to be publicly associated with that campaign, nor did the Republican Party want the open support of the Liberty League. Yet FDR associated the two. Yeah. So there was a want, they wanted to. There had to be this element, and I think this was a you know this becomes a, a theme in conservative politics more generally, where the Liberty League was actually financed by a very small number of very wealthy people, but it always had to present itself as though it were this massive grassroots movement that just had lots of small contributions pouring in from across the country. And, you know, while it did have people who just joined up with the Liberty League, and I think we also, you know, there is a lot of a lot of different forms of actual popular discomfort, resistance. There's a lot of points of, of a lot of ways in which the New Deal was less, remained very contested and less hegemonic during the 30s than I think we sometimes think of it being. It's not just that everybody loved Roosevelt. There were actually, you know, there were some grassroots members of the Liberty League, but that isn't really how the organization took shape, nor is it who it relied on financially. But it, it could never be straightforward about that. It always had to present itself as this much more grassroots, popular upsurge than in fact it was. And nobody really believed it at the time either. So, You write, quote, As the Roosevelt administration's focus shifted from its early attempts to end the Depression through self-action on the part of industry, through the National Recovery Administration, to its later commitments to labor union rights and the creation of a limited welfare state, the opposition of corporations widened. And that opposition right was led by the National Association of Manufacturers, or NAM, which went from being prior to that an organization representing small businesses to one representing the largest manufacturing firms. How did NAM undergo this transformation and what role did its opposition to labor rights to the 1935 Wagner Act in particular play in shaping business opposition to the New Deal? And then lastly, why did the NAM's brazen defense of the interests of business succeed in a way that the Liberty League's more astroturfed general interest approach failed? Right. Well, I think the Nationalization of Manufacturers made some real efforts to revamp itself during the 30s, and the larger business people who became involved in it were, were looking for, again, I think it's they're, they're eager to find an organization that will 
represent them and speak for them at a time when their prestige and power is really under attack. And they do a lot of, you know, they, they, they invest in a public relations program. They spend a lot of money on radio and movies and direct mail. And so they actually, they make an effort, I think, to up their political and PR game, which probably in turn attracted new members to the organization. It's a situation, why is it more successful? Well, I mean, I'm, I don't know if they would have perceived themselves as more successful over, you know, at, at the moment. The National Association of Manufacturers, I think at one point in the early post-war years, there was a political science article that described the support of a the, of NAM as the kiss of death for any <laughs> legislation. So I think it was viewed, again, as, I don't, I think the popular perception of NAM was, you know, that it was a narrow interest group speaking for the wealthy, and that made its support kind of a mixed bag um, for politicians who wanted to present themselves as representing the people in one way or another. But it was maybe it was less easy to mock them than the Liberty League during the 30s. And then I think, you know, the NAM also does shift its agenda somewhat as the as the the 30s go on because yeah what you refer to the the shift in in the new deal itself the without getting too deep into the um details of it all there is this shift from the early 30s to the later 30s in the kinds of legislation that Roosevelt and the Congress were putting forward um, with some of the, the laws from the early 1930s, some of the early things like the National Recovery Administration, which is really involves basically lifting antitrust laws in the hopes that businesses in particular industries would work together to set wages and prices and prevent the disastrous spiral of wage cutting that had prevailed previously. So this really doesn't it doesn't work and it's it's also uh the supreme court throws it out and the kinds of things that the Roosevelt administration is is advancing later in the 30s like the Wagner Act social security the fair labor standards act which creates a national minimum wage these are in some ways more um kind of classically more class based legislation in a way or they are really they involve a vision of ending the depression by boosting the incomes and purchasing power of working class people. And I think Roosevelt is always interested in, always wants to save capitalism. Roosevelt is not, despite the presentation of the Liberty League and NAM, is not a socialist by any stretch of the imagination. But it's a vision of ending the depression and stabilizing capitalism by shifting economic power to wage earners. So and it does actually, you know, as the thirties go on, there's less, you know, Roosevelt's um, support in the South starts to weaken. Some of these laws meet with more resistance, especially from Southern Democrats, partly because they fear that at some point it might challenge the, low wage and segregated labor force of the region and the the south's ability to maintain that it also roosevelt's efforts around the supreme court and the court reorganization bill has a, a kind of stimulates conservative reaction and in 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 the later 30s and the democrats 
lose seats in 1938, you know, which is the first time that has happened over the the New Deal period. So it's a it's I think you know Nam is kind of in that constellation, and as it it, it seeks to it kind of shifts from outright opposition to labor to the Mohawk Valley formula, which is one of the early strike-breaking formulas that's really dependent not on physical force as much as on a elaborate public relations campaign to woo workers back to their jobs in the context of a strike. You write, quote, the politics of World War II transformed the attitude in the business community towards Keynesian economics and New Deal liberalism by giving business a chance to lead the nation once again. But at the same time, that capitalist optimism was also the product of major victories scored against labor, most notably the 1947 passage of Taft-Hartley over President Truman's veto. Where did the business reaction against labor, particularly after World War II, fit into the broader post-war rightward shift in American politics with all these other forces at play, forces like you just mentioned, like the white supremacist conservative Southern Democrats who wielded such enormous power in Congress? Coming right out of World War II, there is tremendous uncertainty about what the post-war economic order will look like. We sometimes forget that the extent of federal intervention in the economy during the war. And the federal government not only had built and was operating a lot of its, you know, it was, it was actually operating a lot of factories directly. It also was intervening in, you know, there, there were these tripartite entities that were setting wages and prices with with labor representatives and corporate representatives and government representatives. And so corporations actually really didn't have as much control over their internal affairs. There was also companies that had been very recalcitrant about recognizing and bargaining with unions were essentially compelled to do so during the war. And I think there are many questions during the war it's both a, 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 a tussle within the political sphere and where business people and industry are trying to take credit for the recovery of the economic system during the war and wanting to lay claim to it and say, really, this is our, you know, we, we're the ones who are elite, who are kind of creating the arsenal of democracy and we're the ones who should get the credit for this for both the military victory as well as the economic recovery of the period. There is a real question, what's going to happen at the end of the war? Roosevelt is talking about an economic bill of rights. There's the question, will unions be able to survive at the end of World War II in a way that they were not, when they weren't at the end of World War I? Will companies continue to have their ability to set wages and prices governed in some way by the federal government? Will this federal response continue after the war? So I think this is a very, there's something, it's, a, it's as, especially as it becomes clear that the allies are going to win the war, these questions come to the forefront. What is reconstruction going to look like when the war is over? And in 1946, and it was not just questions for business, I think you know, labor activists and advocates are also asking these. And at the end of the war, there is, in 1946, there's a 
the it still is the largest strike wave in American history in terms of the number of people who were participating in strikes over this time. And in some of those cases, like at General Motors, the question of opening the books or continuing to have some form of tripartite bargaining or of union ability to actually help to make decisions about production, that that is on the table in a way that it really hasn't been since those those um the labor does make some gains out of the war there is no kind of steep reduction in union membership the way that there was at the end of world war 1 and there are also wage gains that are achieved that make up in part for the slowed wage growth of the war years but on these kind of larger questions about political economy those are turned back and then similarly in the South, the CIO is very aware that the real base of union strength is in manufacturing industries in the North and Midwest and also the, the West Coast, and that the South remains much less unionized than the rest of the country. And there's an effort, Operation Dixie, to organize in the South. This also is really largely not successful. So I think those are the backdrop for the passage of the Taft-Hartley Act, and yes, which is a significant political defeat for unions and for labor and liberalism at the end of the war and marks the beginning of the post-war years. At the same time, I mean, I think Taft-Hartley, you know, for some people, like within NAM, there's actually a very intense battle. The old guard within the National Association of Manufacturers feels like Taft-Hartley is a concession, a huge concession. It basically, you know, what the the Taft-Hartley law limits the ability of unions to engage in sympathy strikes. It makes uh, union shop contracts illegal. So it says that you or that states can pass laws which prevent union membership from being a condition of employment. Those quote unquote right to work laws. It also restricts or kind of creates a set of restrictions for unions that are thought to be led by communists. And it removes the preamble of the Wagner Act, which had kind of stipulated that it was actually federal policy to encourage collective bargaining. So the Wagner Act limits the rights of labor, but it also in other ways enshrines the you know the basic principle of Union elections, the National Labor Relations Board, the kind of protections that you have if you're trying to organize a union. So a lot of the old reaction, the old guard in NAM did not like this and wanted the organization to be much more forcefully opposed to it. So whereas companies like General Motors make make peace with this constrained but still quite powerful mid 20th century collective bargaining order, some on in the most reactionary corners of the business, right? They want like a full repeal of the Wagner Act. Yeah, there are some people who still really want a full repeal of the Wagner Act. There are also people who who, who may not think that that's plausible or possible, but who are still just much more antagonistic towards unions and don't really see the need or, or recognize them as a continued threat. Even the, the the sense of the Treaty of Detroit, 
the two sides can sit down together and bargain over a more constrained set of things. There are some companies that just never fully accept that. And so even if they don't, um, you know, there are some in NAM that would just like to see the whole Wagner Act repealed altogether. Others might not have thought that was plausible, but are still really committed to actively fighting against unions in their workplaces. You know, I think in some ways it's similar, actually, to what is happening in the uh, in the Democratic Party or the, the, the divisions that are emerging in the Democratic Party as um, the Truman administration becomes somewhat more invested in civil rights and, you know, desegregating the armed forces, the civil rights report that it issues, and the reaction of some, how the, the white Southerners are adapting to this or are reacting to it. Some don't want to challenge it outright. Others say this is a deal breaker for us and we have to form our own party and split out of the Democratic Party. So it is a, a kind of a adjustment and everybody is jockeying around how to respond to the a, chain, a changing order. The, the arrival of Austrian neoliberalism in the form of Friedrich von Hayek and Ludwig von Mises marks a major turning point in the story you're telling. You write, quote, the great innovation of Hayek and Mises was to create a defense of the free market using the language of freedom and revolutionary change. Mises wrote this conservative leader that's important in your book, Leonard Reed, in 1942, quote, the arena in which the fate of the West will be decided is neither the conference rooms of the diplomats, nor the offices of the bureaucrats, nor the Capitol in Washington, nor the election campaigns. The only thing which really matters is the outcome of the intellectual combat between the supporters of socialism and those of capitalism. How did how did the ideas of Austrian neoliberal economics first circulate amongst the American business class and take hold that the way they did? And how did this conception of political change take shape, that above all else, what mattered was the battle for ideas? Right. So one thing that the, I think that this sense of strategy that you highlight is quite important, and it partly is the result of, I think it suggests just how much in retreat this group of people thought they were, that the business opponents of the New Deal were aware or had the sense that they had really been beaten. And, you know, that whatever, you know, even the the changes of the war, even Taft-Hartley, it all is adjusting to a profoundly changed terrain. Things are not going back to how they were in the 1920s. And what can they do? They don't have a political base to work from. They represent a small number of people, and they're very aware of how small that is. And so from a position of weakness, what they say is we need to start to organize to change ideas, and we need to develop a new intellectual framework. And I think that the theory of history is maybe not fully fleshed out, but that, like out of doing that, eventually, somehow, the ideas will catch on and will be able to rise once again. So there's a, this this sense of hunkering down and regrouping. And I think one thing that was interesting to me in working on the book was the 
you know, just the self-consciousness that these business activists had about that as a strategy and a way of achieving political change, that that's really how they conceptualize it. And it's not, I think, I was kind of working on this material um, in the early 2000s during the first term of George W. Bush and coming out of the 1990s or this moment of the left being in retreat, there was something, you, you recognized it. It was like, these are, uh, I know these people. I know this approach. I know we're coming at it from very different perspectives. and Our, our actual substantive ideas are pretty much diametrically opposed. But still, I know, I understand how you're going about this and what you're thinking about it. And so I think that was all, I, I remember that sensation in the archives of reading this material. I think it was also interesting because these are not, um, you know, these, these business activists, they're not intellectuals themselves, or they're not academics, they're not scholars, they're not writers even, um, for the most part, although some of them start to write. So they're, And some of them have very strong opinions, like, Hayek is too soft, we need more Mises. Um, yes, yeah, so they, there was a sense of right, kind of which kind of these very subtle these differences that might seem quite subtle to us were very important to them, and they became involved in helping to fund. So Hayek is best known, I think, even today as the author of the Road to Serfdom, um, which is a book which he wrote during World War II in England. He had been living in England all through the 1930s, even though he was from Austria originally. And he wrote this critique of socialism, which is likening socialism to fascism and Nazism and saying that, you know, all the efforts, well-meaning people who are centralizing state power and doing things that they think are in the common interest are actually, by doing that, setting up the groundwork for totalitarianism. So it's a real slippery slope type of argument. And it is a way of seeing any, you know, a higher minimum wage, a new tax, a new business regulation, a safety regulation, all of these become, for Hayek, infringements on freedom and a harbinger of a devastating state power to come that will and and he it's it's a you know there are a lot of interesting things about the road to serfdom um and about Hayek's thought in general he the road to serfdom itself does actually carve out certain exceptions that later people later people working in this vein would not Hayek does give kind of quasi support to saying maybe a minimum wage could be okay in some instances. So there are ways in which even that book is making concessions to the time. But the thrust of the argument is that even if people democratically choose these things, even if they are doing it with the best of intentions, the end result will be this disaster that acts against everything they had been hoping to achieve. And it is this argument about the free market, which is totally transposed into a political language. It's no longer about you know, words like efficiency or the idea that the market creates a lot of material wealth or prosperity or the, those ideas are really not, they, just, they, they fall out of Hayek's approach. Instead, the real issue is 
that infringe the market is a space of spontaneous transactions. Um, it's unknowable. It's too complicated for anybody to control or to dictate. And therefore, any effort to do so is going to be self-undermining and it involves this hubristic rational, rationalism that will inevitably end in terror and Nazism. So it's a, it's a very melodramatic argument and it's also one that has the effect of associating the market profoundly with freedom and with values a free social order. It's not democratic. I mean, Hayek is much more ambivalent about democracy and about conscious political speech and action. But this, so this book was published in 1944, and it's originally released in England, but then United States as well. And it meets with a very a response that Hayek had never anticipated, a popular response, especially from business people who recognize in it something that they hadn't really had before, a kind of full-fledged articulation of their own resentments and angers and transposing them into this amazing language of freedom and spontaneity and market creativity. And the book is adapted for Reader's Digest in a short version um, Hayek is able to get a job at the University of Chicago, which is totally funded by a very small um, conservative think tank. His job is, that is. He's supposed to write an American version of The Road to Serfdom, which he never quite gets around to. And so he, it becomes this, uh, the, the ideas in it are really taken up by this group of business people who find in them a, a, a way of expressing, I think, a set of anxieties and angers and resentments that they had had towards the new economic order, but hadn't really had a principled language for before. And then American businessmen help Hayek build what would become the institutional center of neoliberal thought, the Mont Pelerin Society, which first convened in 1947. And it just hit me that it's funny how the battle of ideas, it turned out that the neoliberal intellectuals really benefited from the overwhelming material resources possessed by American capitalists. Yeah, no, I think that the, the, some of the American business people become actively involved in helping to build the Mont Pelerin Society. And it was not without some ambivalence. I think Hayek was not fully comfortable. You know, there, there was always this very strong sense on the part of the intellectuals in and around Mont Pelerin that you had to keep a certain distance from the business funders. You didn't want to allow them to become full members of the organization, for example. So there was always a certain discomfort about how to do this and what kind of money it was okay to accept. But nonetheless, the, their plane tickets are purchased by these business people, and they, you know, they, they benefit from this alliance in the end. It creates also a, a, a market and an audience for their books and their ideas. And I should say this is, you know, I, I write about Mont Pelerin in Invisible Hands. Angus Bergen is another historian, intellectual historian, who has written about the Mont Pelerin Society and a lot of the fissures and tensions within it and within the world of neoliberal thought at this point. Quinn Slobodian is somebody else who has really delved into this. 
so it is, it's a very active intellectual universe. There's a lot of different tensions and cross currents within the organization and within the free market approach at this point. And then at this, on the other side, there are other writers like Ayn Rand, who uh, is not part of Mont Pelerin. Ayn Rand is among those who condemns Hayek and even Mises, who was kind of to the right of Hayek, um, as being too conciliatory because they don't just claim property and individualism as absolute rights. And Rand has her own following among business people. And so I think there's a interesting. I, I all of and Jennifer Burns has written a, a wonderful biography of Rand that emphasizes partly the the relationship between Rand and her business supporters and followers. So these, this is all work that was done after Invisible Hands was written. So so anyway, it's just a, it's a whole universe and. Mont Pelerin is one strand within it, but I think it's actually even more powerful when you step back and you realize the, you know, the, the different communities that are forming at this point, um, the different intellectual communities that are taking shape at this moment, devoted to rehabilitating the idea of the market in one way or another. In, in 1958, Robert Welch, a former vice president of the NAM, founded the John Birch Society with a group of other industrialists. And the John Birch Society, of course, is typically portrayed as the epitome of mid-20th century anti-communist extremism, the embodiment of what was outside of the mainstream of that era. Where does John, the John Birch Society fit into this larger story about the business right? And was it as much of an outlier as people tend to think? Well, I think, um, so the John Birch Society is founded by this group of small kind of the small to mid-sized manufacturers I was talking about before. And it was kind of, it had a, a very strong conspiracy, conspiracist element to it. For example, Welch went so far as to claim that President Eisenhower was in league with the Soviet Union in one way or another. Now, this was a position that was certainly I think it's picking up partly on McCarthyism and the literal Senator Joseph McCarthy's claims of having these lists of communists in the State Department or in White House offices or in the army. And it's kind of picking up on that aspect of uh, McCarthy is discredited, but the sense that there is this network of Soviet spies in the country is, is not doesn't dissipate. And I think it's actually, John, at least the John Birch Society is picking up on that theme, that there are actually Communist Party activists and spies in high and prominent places in the American government. And this is actually different. I think it's worth noting that it's different than the themes of Hayek and Mont Pelerin and that whole way of thinking about the world, because Hayek was these are really arguments about policy and kind of unintentionality that you might think that by building this new swimming pool, you're just providing a place for kids to swim in the summertime. But actually, you are unintentionally strengthening the power of the state and laying the way for state domination. 
Hayek did not think, and the Mont Pelerin folks did not argue that there were actually they weren't really weren't that interested in what the Soviet Union was doing or in the network of of communist spies or any of that atomic espionage, you name it. They were it just was it wasn't their concern. Their concern was people who really didn't think that they were communist agents, but who unwittingly were taking the country down this road that it would never recover from. Like the they wanted they wanted to emphasize the perversity, futility, and jeopardy of liberalism in sending us down the road to serfdom. Exactly. Yeah, the A.O. Hirschman claims about what the way that by trying to make things better, you would only be making them terribly, terribly worse, and or you would be undercutting other aims that are even more important than the ones that you're attempting to accomplish. So they didn't think there was like a, a network of of agents for a foreign government who were, it just wasn't there. That that wasn't what they were concerned about. So the John Birch Society folks are picking up more on McCarthyism and also on a kind of very literal set of fears. Or it's, it's, they're taking what might be a more amorphous sense that things are shifting in ways that are not you know, you you can't control and actually saying, well, the reason they're doing that is because there's actually this network of people who are secretly running the show. Were they, I think they, it's it's actually not, um, uh, the, the year, in 1958 or in the late 1950s, there is actually a recession that grips the country and in some ways the first real recession since the post-war moment. And there's also a wave of organizing, an interesting kind of uptick in in business organizing and politics more generally. There's a wave of articles about business in politics. There's a a series of right-to-work campaigns or trying to pass these laws, state right-to-work laws, which make union shop contracts illegal. And these are laws in like in California and Kansas. So outside of the South, which had kind of been the first place that a lot of the right to work laws passed in states where there's more union presence. And John Birch Society forms kind of at this moment. And so I think it's like it's on a continuum of business activism that is moving around and gaining more power at this time. It also is building off of not just McCarthyism, but a lot of grassroots anti-communist activism and organizing that is supported by people in the business world. So rather than seeing John, you know, John Huntington, who is a historian who has just written a quite interesting book, Far Right Vanguard, which is about the world of the far right in the third, in the in the forties and fifties and sixties, but he kind of presents things. It, it, it suggests that instead of seeing there being a hard and fast line between the kind of more responsible, serious intellectual conservatives and the people who are really out there, like the John Birch Society, instead you should see it as sort of a continuum and recognize the way that John Birch Society members were probably also reading you know, the materials of Hayek and, and they, they, they were, there's a, an interchange back and forth. A lot of the money for these organizations, including National Review, the magazine founded by William F. Buckley, the money raised for these is coming from the same pool of people. The people who are reading them are kind of the same broad, amorphous group of people. It's not that they're all exactly the same. There are these differences, but 
nonetheless, the kind of high investment that conservatives like Buckley have in saying we are the responsible ones, they are the outliers, that's not the reality of the situation. It's a much larger group of, you know, it, it, there's, a, there's much more overlap, continuity. And, you know, I think with the John Birch Society, it's, it, a lot of the, it, it, the the rhetoric is in some ways similar to people in the Mont Pelerin and Hayek circles, or the highly charged emotional sense of the world divided between those who want freedom and those who want slavery, and that the market and the government are the main actors here. I mean, I think the John Birch Society ups it another level by imputing the power to a network of Soviet agents, but there's something about the framework which would be recognizable, I think. So. You write, quote, historians have argued that in the early years of the conservative movement, there were deep tensions between true believers in the free market and intellectuals who saw the decline of religious tradition as key to the fall of the Western world. National Review is rightly known for pioneering what the historian George Nash has described as the fusion of conservative ideas, joining Hayekian faith in the market and critique of the New Deal to the larger moral and political concerns of traditionalists. What do we learn about this really important story of fusionism when we understand the role played by reactionary businessmen in making it a reality? In some ways, I think what, and maybe a lot of Invisible Hands is kind of doing this, is shifting the attention away from, you know, the lively intellectual debates and the different worldviews and the, you know, all of the, the, the real and important distinctions between you know, Hayek and Russell Kirk and James Burnham and all of these different, and, and Rand, who was obviously not in the National Review Circle explicitly, and all of the important differences between them. And one of the things that Invisible Hands is doing is saying those those differences are real, but they were less interesting to some of the people whose money and resources pushed this all forward than what they shared, which was a common interest in a sense of the dangers of the welfare state, of labor, and of any shift towards social concerns being kind of embedded in economic life. Um, and that whatever the, the all the, 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 the subtle, interesting differences that were so engaging to people at the time and that historians have worked on since, they all, they, 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 you know, from another perspective, what mattered more was how these ideas could be used to blunt um, any shift at all towards a more egalitarian politics and economy. You write about J. Howard Pugh, the, the former president of Sun Oil, which was a company founded by his father. He took on the challenge of mobilizing Christians behind the free market and sent ministers copies of The Road to Serfdom and founded an organization called Spiritual Mobilization, quote, which took as its mission the invention of a theological justification for capitalism. It's a sort of politics that's extremely normal today. But you write that spiritual mobilization never really had any success in impacting <laughs> American Christianity on any sort of institutional level. It could not find an organic basis in actual church communities um, for pews crusade. And Pew wasn't even really much of like a Christian fundamentalist himself. So 
but <laughs> but he did respond to a 1955 letter from Billy Graham and donated $150,000 to help him found Christianity Today, which, of course, turned out to be an important piece, important piece of a much more fruitful endeavor. What did Pew hope to accomplish with spiritual mobilization, and, and why did it fail? Right, and so I, I actually hear I would point people partly who are interested in this to, to Kevin Cruz's book, In God We Trust, which is it goes into a lot more depth about a lot of the relationship between conservative Christians in the 1950s and their supporters in the broader conservative political orbit, including some of these business people. But, you know, actually, the example, so with spiritual mobilization, and so someone like Pew is uh, casting around for, you, you can see them in the 1950s looking around and trying to say, how can we actually attract people to this set of ideas? How can we make people see that conservatism is not just, you know, we, we, will never, we will never win if people see it as only the self-interested politics of a narrow business elite. We have to make it clear that it speaks to these broader interests and concerns. And I think religion and Christianity appears to be one very good way to do that and to claim you know, literally the moral high ground and to find, you know, there's a, a, people are, are in churches, and so if you could only reach the ministers, you could reach the people. And I think you can see, I mean, one thing, actually all of these examples are, in a way, these conservative activists are all doing the same thing. They're trying to think, how can we attract, how can we find a popular base who will listen to and support our ideas? Spiritual mobilization was a good an interesting example because it was so, you know, there was just nothing really organic about it. It, it was it was so obviously an attempt to just take a set of concerns about unions and taxes and graft them onto some weird version of sort of a, a, a Christian framework. So you have wind up with these statements about, you know, how God loves capitalism and <laughs> Jesus, you know, this, uh, Jesus appealed to many motives, but at no time did he appeal to disinterested altruism. Instead, he constantly invokes the profit motive that social dreamers consider the root of all evil. <laughs> That's how I remember <laughs> the Gospels. Right. It's, 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 it's so... Um, there's just something, it, it's, it's really trying to join these things together in a kind of awkward and not very persuasive way. And it's not, obviously, there's plenty of support for, you know, there, there are lots of ways that the Bible and Christianity can be used to, as a support for capitalism. But this was just not, um, this was just, it was just so shallow and so much oriented towards manipulating that that it, it just, I think, didn't have any really lasting traction at all. But you can see here, it's the same kind of thing. Pew is looking around. He's trying different things. He's trying, he, and because he has all this money and all these resources, he can try things and see how they go. And if they don't work, he can try something else, like Christianity Today, which had a much deeper, um, you know, was was more of an organic entity and had a, long-lasting impact and effect. So I think it's a one thing about these 
another thing that you get by looking at the, the funders and the business activists is this sense that, you know, just of the, the power that money can give you over time to sustain a movement because you don't have to win right away. You can just keep putting different money into different things and see what sticks and what takes off. General Electric was a pioneer of 1950s anti-labor right-wing capitalist reaction. It was a massive company with 190,000-plus employees that manufactured to write the, quote, consumer bounty of the post-war era, including much of the U.S. Cold War weaponry. GE, though, targeted workers with this comprehensive political re-education campaign against New Deal liberalism and labor unions, led by GE Vice President Lemuel Bulwer, the model thus became known as Bulwerism. What did Bulwerism entail? And more specifically, how did it involve GE using its power and influence over its managers and then managers' influence over workers to displace the role of labor organizers in order to remake worker ideology? Bulwerism really refers to two different ways of approaching unions. Um, The first is that, so Bulwar was, kind of came to General Electric as a vice president, and he was always a intensely political, his approach to labor relations was, I think, unusually political. As he wrote in one 1945 memo after he got there, Management is in a sales campaign who determine who will run business and the country and to determine if business and the country will be run right. Who has been winning in the sales competition for 13 years and who still is, is all too evident in elections, labor laws, the attitude of all public servants, and the convictions held by workmen and the public about management. And so he really thought of his job at General Electric as winning that sales campaign back and persuading people that management, not unions, um, and not the collective efforts more generally, is is really that the management was the source of their prosperity, security, and happiness. Bullerism really consisted of two approaches to union relations. So the first was a strategy at the bargaining table. And it was, though, rather than in a typical contract negotiation situation, the two sides will meet, they'll offer proposals, they'll talk about them, they'll negotiate them, the workers will vote on a contract. And Bulwer sort of threw this out. So he stopped engaging. They would have meetings where management wouldn't really say anything. It wouldn't respond to the proposals. It wouldn't offer any proposals of its own. Management representatives would just sit there and not actually engage in any back-and-forth negotiation. And then it would go out, reveal its own contract, which never been really discussed or negotiated, to the workers and say, here it is. Here's the, the result. And you can vote on it. It's our final offer. Take it or leave it. Even if you strike, we're not going to change it. So that was the bulwark approach to contract negotiations, and actually it was ruled an unfair labor practice eventually, um, that that's actually, you know, it's, it's not, it's just not in keeping with the spirit of the national, of, of labor law to do this. You have to engage in some kind of real negotiation. 
The other part of it, though, was to try to organize a elaborate ideological campaign to, so that the company and the free market more generally would take credit for the well-being of workers. And Boulware had the, a conception of the sort of the organization of the factory as kind of like a, a society or a, a social order in which supervisors and managers were thought leaders who were able to influence the workers beneath them. And to that end, he would plaster the company with, uh, he would plaster supervisors and managers with different tracts, books, the writings of Hayek, of other free market thinkers. He organized study groups for managers. He politicized the company newsletter and newspaper so that all of the letters were really within the, the framework of, um, of you know, sort of writing about things in terms of the conflicts with the union and with the employer. He tried to bring the company into politics and to encourage businessmen to become more politically active overall. So there was a, a very, it was both, there, there was a, at one point a free market economics class that workers had to take on company time. Um, so they actually stopped production to encourage, you know, people, people had to do this during their working hours to go to the set of classes about the free market. So it was this very elaborate effort to try to change the ideas of the workforce, as well as to demonstrate through this negotiating strategy that actually the union was powerless and couldn't do anything, that all agency, all power lay in the hands of the employers. You write about how the, the rise of the Cold War meant not only that liberals and conservatives worked together to repress the domestic left, but also that liberals began to see Soviet totalitarianism rather than, say, poverty as the central problem to be confronted. And then, in addition, anti-communism helped the right-wing business reaction in really concrete ways, including in the case of GE. The, the United Electrical Workers, or UE, were purged from the CIO in 1949 because its leaders refused to sign affidavits affirming that they were not Communist Party members. At the time, UE was one of the biggest unions in the country, um, but that soon began to change. You had this new anti-communist union, the International Union of Electrical Workers, which I think alongside other unions, raided UE. And so in 1960, the IUE, the anti-communist union, goes on strike. And you write, quote, this divided labor force provided an ideal testing ground for Bulware's propaganda campaigns. What happened? And could Bulwarism have succeeded had labor not succumbed to anti-communism? Yeah, I think that the this this uh, manif that this the consequences of this became clear in 1960 when there was a major strike at General Electric and the workforce was divided. Bulwar waged a very or led the company in waging a very concerted effort to get workers to come back to their jobs, to cross the picket line, to undermine the strike, and was able to do so. And in part, yes, well, I think it's one of the tricky and complicated things. Um, I, I think it would have been 
possible for it's 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 hard to uh you know you don't get in history to run like a counterfactual controlled experiments <laughs> right exactly we don't get to say what would have happened or can we see bullerism rising up and would it have been as successful if ue had been the only union in the industry um if it hadn't been a divided workforce if it hadn't been if there wasn't already this contentious situation where one union was bashing the other, and it, what maybe then it would have been stronger. Maybe then it would have been able to the, the, the successes of Boerism wouldn't have been as pronounced. But 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 yeah, history doesn't work that way. And so I think in a way you can see both th- this program of propaganda and manipulation and really effort to use the power that already exists in the company to and and to wield that to political ends. Um, I think that was what was so interesting to me about GE is that it's not just a ideological campaign. It's really an effort to use the reality of the material weight of the factories and the company as a force in people's lives and to kind of mobilize that to undermine these political institutions of the unions that was so interesting to me about what GE was doing. And yes, I think it, it does seem like that this, in a way, the the larger context of the Cold War, its impact on the labor movement, all of that opens up a space where you know, the the basic claim that GE is making, which is that the company is more powerful than any collective representation that the workers could hope to achieve, and that therefore you should ally with it rather than trying to form this union, trying to stay in the union, listening to the union, acting together. In a way, it creates a material situation where that is more true and is therefore also more persuasive. One last point on GE that we should cover. In 1954, the company hired Ronald Reagan, the actor, to host a weekly TV series that was sponsored by the company. Who was Reagan when he started at GE and who was he by the time that he left? Yes, well, Reagan's the the role of GE for Reagan is is really interesting. Um, Reagan was in the early fifties, kind of coming off of his time in Hollywood. His most successful screen actor days were behind him, and he had in Hollywood, of course, been the president of the Screen Actors Guild. And in that capacity, he had been he was kind of he was a, a real anti communist liberal. He was he had had cooperated with HUAC and had been, um, you know, kind of involved in fighting communism in the film industry. So he was very invested in the Cold War and in in anti-communist politics in that way. But at the same time, he was a Democrat. You know, he had been a, a supporter of, or his family had benefited from the WPA and the New Deal during the 30s. Um, he was, you know, he was in Hollywood, and it was a in, a in a kind of liberal milieu, and he was a union president. So when he came to GE, he still had this combination of political values behind him, and his job at GE was twofold. He both was supposed to host the weekly movie that GE sponsored on 
one of the networks. And so he was kind of, he introduced it at the beginning. So he was a familiar face on TV in people's living rooms that way. But he also was supposed to go around and give talks to groups of GE workers. So he was kind of like an internal celebrity who would come and talk to them about General Electric, about the about capitalism, about the free market, about the dangers of the welfare state. And he gave this speech over and over again at GE plants across the country. And then out of that, he would also go out and he would meet with local chambers of commerce or rotary clubs. So meeting small groups of local business people. And his politics really hardened around the free market and around opposition to liberalism and to the welfare state and to taxation over his years at General Electric. So that by the time the early 60s come around, he is has become much more conservative and also really part of a you know, part of the business conservative movement in a way. You know, he's read all this political material that Bulwer is saturating the company with at this time. He, Reagan at that point didn't like to fly, um, and so he would take the train around the country uh, with other GE executives, and one can imagine them talking and discussing and thinking about the different books and articles that they were reading. So, yeah, in a lot of ways, the time that he spent at GE was pretty important for him in terms of becoming much more conservative. And it's there that he starts to, you know, describe the progressive tax as the brainchild of Karl Marx, to talk about the statists in Washington, D.C., to warn that any expansion of government activity means someday a government that will be a big brother to us all. And he and Reagan, I mean, he and Bulwer, Bulwer and Reagan recognized each other as allies and as they they were friends. Bulwer knew that this was somebody who could take the approach and the the worldview that he was building at the company and bring it out um, into a broader orbit. So, yeah, Reagan really is quite transformed by his time at General Electric. Something that would be quite clear when he was president is that Reagan was great at delivering his lines, in in part because he would come to believe the script. Yeah, and he actually, I mean, the, often the, the you know one of the, the points that is cited as a real shift in Reagan's own career is his famous speech that he gave for Barry Goldwater on television during in the, a few weeks before the 1964 election. And at that point, um, the speech is called uh, A Time for Choosing and is meant to, you know, Reagan talks in that speech about how he himself started out as a Democrat and he has come to realize the problems with the Democratic Party and with liberalism and to support, you know, that's why he's supporting Goldwater. But out of that, that speech. Now, that speech was given first to audiences of business people in California as a fundraising thing. And they were so impressed by it that they bought the time for Reagan to give it on national TV, where it was a money kind of poured into the Goldwater campaign afterwards. But all of it, I mean, I think it's actually really important for thinking about Reagan. People sometimes see Reagan as just, you know, kind of emptily parroting things. But he really came out of a movement and his he makes a lot more sense 
the ideas that he's talking about are, and the, the books that he's referencing and his whole frame of reference is this, this business conservative mobilization. And he, you know, and that, that makes sense because he, he wasn't just an outsider to that. He kind of came up within it in, in really important ways. I'm Astrid Taylor, and you're listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver a podcast for people who want to deeply understand the world and organize to change it. That's why you should support the show at patreon.com slash the dig. This episode of The Dig, like every episode of The Dig, is produced in partnership with Jacobin Magazine. Jacobin is an incredible publication, and you've probably seen a lot of what they've published online. But they also have a really beautiful print magazine It comes out quarterly and has well over 100 pages packed with illustrations, infographics, and some of the best graphic design in the country. Dig listeners can join 50,000 Jacobin subscribers developing socialist political thought and debate for just $15 a year. $15 gets you an entire year of Jacobin in print and access to the magazine's entire back catalog. If you've never subscribed to Jacobin before, you can access this deal by going to bit.ly slash digjacobin, all lowercase. That's bit.ly slash digjacobin, bit.ly digjacobin, all lowercase. We should talk about Barry Goldwater, who obviously comes before the Reagan revolution and lays the groundwork for it in many ways. He was the son of the founder of Goldwater's, which you write as, quote, was, quote, the largest and fanciest department store in the desert city of Phoenix. What role did business conservatives play in organizing Goldwater's candidacy? We often think of the floor of the Cow Palace in San Francisco as full of John Birchers, as though it was kind of just like the product of, of middle-class Orange County suburbanite extremism. Oh, and then also, to what extent were Goldwater's politics shaped by his position as a local capitalist elite? Right. So Goldwater is um, coming out of a, a context, and Elizabeth Shermer has a, a wonderful book about Phoenix and, and this distinctive kind of Sunbelt conservatism that it helps to inculcate. But Goldwater is, you know, he's a, he's a local booster for the city of Phoenix, which is a developing city at this point. And he's very interesting. And he himself is obviously, so he's a business man and, and the inheritor of this department store there and a, you know, a department store being, again, the kind of business that's really dependent on encouraging the commercial growth of the whole city. So he's interested in winning investment for Phoenix all along and in doing, you know, kind of reshaping local Phoenix politics to be, to establish the city as a business-friendly space. And Goldwater moves into national attention in the Senate and he is on a Senate committee that is charged with investigating labor and management practices. And this this committee has is formed partly to a, a kind of investigate charges of abuse and corruption in the labor movement. It focuses on the teamsters, like sort of like mob mobbed up teamsters or whatever. Yeah, mob ties. So there's a you know, kind of a I mean in a, a way the 
the formation of the the um, you know the committee is both a reflecting skepticism about labor and also real problems in the labor movement at that point. So, and a lot of what it did was investigate the Teamsters, but Goldwater kind of seeks to shift the attention of the committee to the United Auto Workers, which were not. I mean, they, 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 and specifically, he wants to focus attention on this one particular strike that the UAW was involved in, a lengthy strike at a small manufacturer, um, the Kohler Company. They manufactured plumbing fixtures in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. And Kohler had been engaged in a lengthy conflict with United Auto Workers there that had become sort of a cause celeb for the conservative movement, at the, for, for business conservatives. So by bringing this whole uh, episode to Congress, it was really egregious on Goldwater's part. There was no evidence of actual financial corruption. It, it, it wasn't the type of thing that the committee was really involved in investigating in the first place. Kohler had become kind of a hero to small manufacturers by bringing it to national attention. Then Goldwater became a hero to this same group of people. Out of that experience, uh, Goldwater is approached to write a book. Oh, before you before you move on to that, it, these hearings provided Goldwater with an opportunity to demonize Walter Ruther in particular. Right. In particular, he takes on Walter Ruther, and yeah, like there, there what he he's able to to bring Ruther to Congress to have to defend himself. And it's, a, it's again, there, like there was some local violence at the Kohler plant, but there really wasn't anything that, it wasn't, it was not conducted from above by the UAW's national leadership in any way, let alone, there, there was just no evidence of financial malpractice in the case at all. So the hearings were a bit anticlimactic for Kohler and for Goldwater, but they demonstrated that they still were able to make Goldwater this hero for people who hated Walter Ruther. And out of this, Goldwater is approached to write a book summing up his beliefs and political ideas. And uh, there's actually a, Clarence Mannion, who is the um, who has a, a conservative early conservative radio program, connects Goldwater with the brother-in-law of William F. Buckley, who basically ghostwrites the book for for Goldwater. Brent Bozell. The, yeah, yeah, L. Brent Bozell, and the book, the resulting book is Conscience of a Conservative. And the original plan with Conscience of a Conservative was that basically business conservatives would buy it, that it was going to be produced, you know, that companies like General Electric would give advance off, you know, advance, they would advance sales for, you know, like 500 copies or something of the book that they would give to supervisors and employees. And then the money was going to be used to back a 
challenge to Richard Nixon for who, who was the, the vice president at the time. Goldwater would challenge Nixon in the Republican primary of 1960 with the money that was raised this way. So the whole project, again, this is like, it's interesting that it was really backed by these resources. The whole idea of it was to have companies buy the book and then the money could be, you know, that's why the book was able to come into existence in the first place was that they, they knew that there were enough companies that would be willing and interested in placing these orders. And then that money was going to be used to help Goldwater into, you know, kind of get a broader hearing still for his views by making a bid for the presidency. The, the book ultimately becomes much more successful as a popular book than I think its original funders had realized or thought that it might. It actually attracts a mass market and it has a more, you know, there's much more interest in among young people and on college campuses than people thought that it would. And again, it's just thinking back to earlier in our conversation, what is really notable about Conscience of a Conservative, and you can hear it even in the title, is that it's very explicitly meant to be redefining conservatism so that people no longer see it as a project of a small number of wealthy people, but instead something for people with a conscience, with a, a moral program. And the beginning of the book is even more elaborate about this, saying conservatism doesn't have to do with material things at all, but with the spirit and so on and so forth. But it, there is obviously an irony that the book is, for all these claims, very much produced within this business mobilization. And that's part of the reason that it comes into existence in the first place. And like you say, it's a much huger hit than its backers had anticipated. On the road, Goldwater is greeted like he's the Beatles or something. Right. He kind of become he 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 develops a real uh, popular following out of it. One key thing Goldwater did to appeal to whites in the South was to attack the civil rights movement using, you write, quote, the same language that business conservatives had used to protest the New Deal portraying themselves as outnumbered, outmanned, but engaged in principled resistance against mob-like mass movements and a tyrannical state. He also tried to recruit working-class white voters more generally, not by trashing unions or Social Security, but rather by warning of a, quote, moral crisis in America today. Did the business right at this time share, already share a common vocabulary with the socially reactionary right or did they have to build it? Were they in the process of building it? Well, I, I think to a certain extent, there are key aspects of it that are shared already, and that that there is a a, a recognition of a common set of interests and a common worldview that you can really see even in the late. It comes and goes, but you can see it at moments, for example, in the late 1930s, the Conservative Manifesto was this program that Southern Democrats and Northern Republicans issued together, and it talks about the need to limit the power of the federal government, to respect states' rights, and so forth. Similarly, in some of the you know, in, in kind of in massive resistance, the 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 resistance of the white South to the desegregation of schools, you can again hear 
you know, the, 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 the move at that moment in some cases is the most extreme to simply close the public schools and open private ones instead that could be segregated. That type, you know, there, there, there's a sense of the problems of the public sector. That part of the difficulty for the white South is that the public sector is, you know, public institutions you can make a set of democratic claims on them. And there's there's something of that sensibility, I think, that is, is shared so that there's aspects of the vocabulary that are, and that's part of how Goldwater is able to, you know, kind of give a new level of articulation about this to say. You can, sur- you can kind of see it in the early years of Jesse Helms' career, too. We tend to think of Jesse Helms as just like primarily a social reactionary, but in in reality, he, much like Goldwater, articulated his opposition to the civil rights movement in these business conservative terms. Yeah, I'm kind of saying, I think he says at one point about public schools, you know, why why should you have public schools at all if they're these are these state controlled institutions and the state will. Yeah, you know, as long as you have them, the state will have some claim on how they're run, obviously. So since you can't, as long as you, you know, if, if you assume some level of democratic politics, then you, you've ceded control over the institutions. And so it's better, Helms says, that some, you know, that public schools are an instance of socialism. So if you really want control over who's in your school, you just have to start your own school and pay for it yourself. So, I, so yeah, there's a similar, and, and I think, you know, just in the, in the framework of it's, you know, what's the, this is, this is a different, you know, this language eventually will, people will kind of describe it as quote unquote colorblind or something like that. And it is true that it's un- unlike the, you know, you also certainly find circulating around the citizens councils, which were, the major and mostly middle class, really, organizations formed to fight the desegregation of schools and to flout the Brown versus Board of Education. And, you know, they, they're filled, their, their literature is filled with really explicitly racial warnings and fears about how dangerous the schools will be with black children and white children together. And, you know, the, the you know, fears of interracial friendships and intermarriage, kind of, you know, racial marriage and like the whole world of of racial animosity and just racism that the they're interested in promoting. And that's, you know, Goldwater explicitly issues that, saying he thinks it's, you know, he himself personally supports integration, but he just doesn't think that the Constitution gives the power to the federal government. And that local control is the way to go. And so it, I, I don't know if I'm not sure colorblind is really the right framework for it, but it is a it's a inside outside appealing to an enabling racist fears and ideas to have control, but not explicitly basing the arguments around them in the way that other activists are at the same time. The late 60s and early 70s marked a major crisis for business legitimacy. Corporate America was blamed for pollution and for the war in Vietnam. There was a massive strike wave and a Republican 
president, Richard Nixon, created both the EPA and OSHA in 1970. But then there was, of course, a major crisis for Keynesianism in the form of stagflation. How did business conservatives analyze their own legitimacy crisis? And then how did they resolve that crisis by exploiting the crisis that hit liberalism and Keynesianism? The early 70s, there's a very widespread sense of anxiety. This is sometimes, sometimes people point to the Powell Memorandum, the famous memorandum written by Lewis Powell, who was um, a, would be appointed to the Supreme Court or nominated for the Supreme Court shortly after writing this memo. But at the point when he wrote it, he was a a lawyer living in Richmond, Virginia, and he was he he had been the president of the American Bar Association. He was a partner. He was at a law firm. He was on the board of directors for different corporations, and he was good friends with a fellow who was the who active in the United States Chamber of Commerce. And his friend asked him to write a memo to describe what could be done to address what. they both thought was an increasingly problematic political situation with the rising anti-war movement. Um, Ralph Nader, they were obsessed with. Um, And (laughs) And safe at any speed. (laughs) Yeah, the kind of the the EPA and OSHA and the the context in in which they were, again, you know, this is, they they were worried or they, they write in the memo about radical violence, but that's not really what's alarming. What is alarming instead to them are college students who say that they don't like capitalism, clergy people and the academics and the whole a sense that a elite infrastructure has become skeptical and hostile to the free market. And this memo is called The Attack on the Free Enterprise System. And it is this Jeremiah about the danger that business confronts, that the you know that, that individual freedom, not just profits, is at stake, and that business has to find ways to fight back, including organizing politically, trying to change minds again through different types of public relations and other campaigns, and then act, organizing through the courts. There's a great interest in using the courts trying to organize separate institutions in academia. So there's a a, a variety of suggestions about how to do this. And people sometimes look to the Powell Memorandum as like a a blueprint or something like that. But I don't think that that's actually the most, I think that the better way to look at it is that it is a crystallization of a strain of opinion that was much more widespread in the business community at that point. So what's interesting about it isn't just that like Powell wrote it and then people went out and did it. I think if you look around in the the writing from that time, you find this kind of statement and idea and sense of being under siege, uh, you know, everywhere. It's in lots of different quarterly report statements and letters to stockholders and different talks that business leaders give. And there's, again, like this new sense of trying to find some way to address the problem. And other Ben 
Waterhouse has written about this very well, the, the kind of revitalization of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, the formation of the Business Roundtable. These are new business organizations. I mean, Chamber of Commerce is old, but it gets a lot of new life, new energy, and dynamism during this era. The Business Roundtable is a new organization, which is meant to be you know, represent only the very largest Fortune 500 companies and to direct them into politics. And all of it is meant to kind of give business people more confidence in intervening politically. And I think what you mentioned about Keynesianism is very important. I think, and and this is, you know, one thing that I think that Invisible Hands no, as a book, it doesn't do enough of is that there's a I think there's a, a really intense shift in the context of the 70s and that the economic slowdown and recession, the high inflation, the rising unemployment of that decade and the the difficulty that liberals have responding to it. It creates a really different context for these conservative ideas. And it is one in which they are much more able to take root and to gain a kind of popular following uh, after all this time. And there's also in the wake of the Powell memo, which is not the instigator of all of this institution building, but is a, a signal moment in it, you also have the creation of the Heritage Foundation. Right. The creation of the Heritage Foundation, which, again, has a lot of the same ideas, only it is braiding in. I think this is another interesting aspect of the 70s, that there's a much more forceful and explicit and successful effort to capitalize on cultural fears and anxieties and on the simmering backlash politics and braid it into, braid it together with the advocacy for the free market. So it's kind of like an echo of what the spiritual mobilization people were doing, but where that was just trying to sort of graft some version of Hayek in, into the, you know, in, into a vague Christianity, the in the seventies there really is a you know a, a set of questions about the family, about sexuality, about gender, not to mention about race and racism and housing, schools. So there's a lot happening that the organizations like Heritage are trying to braid together, bring together the politics, the, the cultural, racial, sexual politics of the time and link them to a broader anti-government mobilization. And it's a, the, the connection is more organic than it had been in the 1950s and is, I think, also able to get more, more traction. You write, quote, Although the religious right, as it became known, was always deeply moved by issues having to do with family and sexuality and had formed in part as a backlash against feminism and gay rights, its spokesmen often framed their political positions in anti-government language, which made it possible for them to form an alliance with business conservatism, business conservatives. And specifically, you write really fascinatingly, the nascent religious right 
used a fight against an IRS crackdown on racially segregated Christian schools to help find that organic basis for the free market right in church communities that spiritual mobilization never could. Yeah, this is in the the late 1970s. And I should say, I I got interested in this partly because of uh, working with some of the Falwell papers and Jerry Falwell's writings. You know, he really writes a lot about economics, and it's not uh, just very present in his public writing. So that was kind of one of the things that got me interested in this whole connection. But yeah, the the Christian schools, um, after school desegregation, after Brown versus Board of Education, there is this mobilization in parts of the, the South where white families pull their kids out of public schools that are starting to be integrated. And instead, they start new schools, these all-white private schools, um, some of which called themselves Christian schools. And they did so, and maybe they had a little bit of some Christianity in their curricula, but the real reason they were doing that was to claim tax exemptions that religious institutions could have. And especially after private schools are also not allowed to deny to be racially segregated institutions, that they call even more call themselves Christian schools because they think this will give them a certain immunity from the IRS. And I think it's it's complicated. Not all Christian schools in the South were these type of segregation academies as they became known. But nonetheless, there is this explosion of Christian schools, and a good number of them are, in fact, um, schools that are founded out of the reaction against Brown and that have their basis in an attempt to limit um, or just completely exclude the number of black students. So in the late 70s, the IRS issues new guidelines for the Christian private schools in which they have to actively demonstrate, they have to demonstrate that they are not engaged in active discrimination and exclusion. Tyranny, government tyranny. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And so they kind of, there's a huge... Yeah, this, is, this, this creates great furor among many of the schools and also the, you know, the, the leadership of the, the growing Christian right describes this. And it's, a, it's they're really, they're focused on, you know, what they say or what, as Falwell puts it, they're unalterably opposed to intrusion by bureaucrats into our religious freedom. And there's a sense that of, of Christians being policed and monitored and, and so on and so forth. And so the whole, the whole I think it, it actually becomes this galvanizing issue in which, but it was sort of a perfect issue for the business conservatives because it completely married, you know, there's this question about regulation and government regulation and taxation. It just joined it entirely to children, schools, integration, and yeah, Christian prerogative. So, I think this actually was a a very important, uh, you know, we we think often of abortion or the Equal Rights Amendment, you know, all of which also had, you know, these also brought in questions about the state pretty directly. But this, the IRS actually played, this, this controversy played a really important role in helping to politicize Christians in the late 70s. In 1979, Jerry Van Andel, 
who co-founded Amway along with Richard DeVos, a family that's still very much with us today. He became Van Andel became chairman of the Chamber of Commerce, and Amway is such a fascinating example of the way that business conservatism became mass politics during this period. You write, quote, Although Amway distributors did sell products, the company was really sustained by its ability to generate faith in an inspirational idea of entrepreneurship. Amway was much more than a simple direct marketing firm. It was an organization developed with missionary zeal to the very idea of free enterprise. The company sustained tremendous support for its goods and operations through large rallies attended by thousands of distributors, which doubled as celebrations of free enterprise and capitalism. This sort of a leading question, but what was it about Amway, a firm frequently accused of being a multi-level marketing operation or pyramid scheme, that, that made it such a good vehicle for free market populism? Well, this actually touches on a... I think another question that maybe comes out of the end of Invisible Hands and sort of goes beyond the the, the book ends in, in 1980, really, with Reagan's election. But there's a whole question of what's happened after that. And I think that the revival of both both the idea and the reality of entrepreneurship and small business is actually quite important, and it's something else I wish that the Invisible Hands had dealt with more systematically. So with in, with Amway, I mean, Amway is, um, basically what Amway is doing is is creating little entrepreneurs, or you're supposed to, uh, when, you, when you sign up with Amway, you get these products, you're supposed to sell them to your family and friends, but you're also supposed to bring new people into the, the business, and then they too will take this on. And part of the way you get, the reason people describe it as a multi-level marketing scheme or a pyramid is that it's, you get paid for bringing in new people. And so there's a question of, if that stopped, would the whole thing fall apart? And what is just really important about it is that it's 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 kind of creating this grassroots of people who are redefining themselves as entrepreneurs and small business people. And so whatever else they might be doing in kind of quote unquote real life or whatever their real job is, they start to invest themselves and their idea of who they are uh, in this idea that they're going to become phenomenally wealthy as Amway distributors and as participants in this this entrepreneurial venture. And I think that this, um, you know, once you start to see yourself this way and you start to invest in your idea of yourself as an entrepreneur and a business person, um, it does start, it can start to shift your politics in a lot of ways too, that you begin to identify more with the free market, you start to get more resentful of collective institutions um, and the demands that they might place on you. And your your identity, your political identity begins to shift. And I actually think that you know, Amway is one particular instance of this, but there are a lot of ways in which our political economy has moved in this direction since the you know in the, in the moment after 1980 and i think you can see this in a variety of different areas 
think I don't know if you Doug Henwood's really wonderful work on the nature of the ruling class. She wrote about in a lengthy Jacobin article describing the importance of proprietary capitalism and the 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 Koch family and other kind of privately held fortunes that have played a really outsized role in funding and financing libertarian ideas. The and it also Steve some of Steve Fraser's work and Melinda Cooper on family capitalism. And I think these privately held fortunes that where there's a, a, a priority on individual or family control of the enterprise and the entity. In certain ways, actually, the kind of venture capital echoes this too, that it, you know, this emphasis on entrepreneurialism, on the, the, the political power of the founders and investors over the company kind of holding on to it before it becomes public and is subject to any regulation from outside, from the SEC even. or So I think at all levels of the American economy, there is this shift that we start to see in the 1980s and afterwards towards both towards ideas of entrepreneurship and towards the, the power of private corporations as opposed to publicly held firms. And it is interesting that these are actually, I mean, a lot of the, um, you know, these the, the, the kinds of companies that were most active in the free market movement in the 50s and 60s were also these smaller, mostly privately held companies, although there are differences as we've discussed. And, but it's, it's, it's just, anyway, Amway is a certain iteration of this. There's this kind of broader thing at work, I think, in terms of creating this material basis for the sort of an ideology rooted in the kind of entrepreneurialization of the self around, you know, that comes about with asset appreciation oriented populism through debt fueled mass consumption, permanently rising housing prices, and really a precursor of sorts to today's crypto economy and its libertarian ideological underpinnings. Yeah, I mean, I think in some ways that you know that there 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 are many versions of this. The idea of the the gig economy, overstated though it might be in some ways, but that the you know you do have people who are you know thinking of themselves as sort of in business on their own. Certainly, the idea of you know at a much lower level something like or just ideas about day trading, using the stock market, even the identification with your 401k plan. Um, There are a lot of ways in which the political economy has shifted so that there is an element of, yeah, all different kinds of people conceiving of themselves as entrepreneurs and their main connection materially to the society is through their entrepreneurial endeavors. Um, Which is why the privatization of Social Security is like really the holy grail for this on the right. Right. In a way, that is like the, the it's one one version of, you know, how how this could go a whole, you know, why have anything like Social Security at all, which is a whole collection of individual Know, stockholders or something like that. Like what? So it, it's a, it's and, and I think this like 
you know, this runs alongside. It's interesting because it's not it's a phenomenon that is both ideological. There's a lot of energy, intellectual energy, publishing energy that goes into kind of vamping up the sense of self-help and entrepreneurialism, but it also goes along with a, a, a shift in material organizations that there are actually, you know, there there is a whole network of small businesses or companies that have gone through some form of devolution so that they're contracting with each other instead of all in-house. And then, yeah, like I said, the the rise in certain sectors of these really important, privately held, and very politically active sources of, of wealth. And yeah, and, and the valorization of, of venture capital. And, and yeah, I think the crypto phenomenon is connected to this too. So in all these different areas, there's this shift in the both the material and the intellectual culture. And out of that, it's, it's like that's the, the, the substratum in which all of these ideas about the state infringing on you, about the the stupidity and foolishness and banality and and everything of these collective goods. Those are, that's the context in which those make intuitive sense. They stop just being kind of advancing a narrow agenda, and they're just the worldview that resonates. And so I think that's part of what I mean. I think you know now I think we're in a very strange moment. I I do and I think so because. Some of the limits of this worldview are or have been becoming more painfully clear, and that there are problems, climate crises, the public health crises of the pandemic, and the things that have come out of that 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 cannot they really can't be addressed through this framework, and actually the the the, the libertarian framework really only makes them much, much more difficult to address. And so I, I think it's a, so I, I think there is a, it's a moment of, of really profound tension because it's not clear what will come next and how much energy will be invested in propping up, you know, the fantasies of entrepreneurialism. You write, quote, it is in the world of labor relations that the vision of the business conservatives has perhaps been most fully realized. The decline of labor was not only institutional, the very idea of the working class as a distinct group with its own interests from those of its employers also seemed to recede, yielding to a new vision of workers as entrepreneurs themselves, always engaged in selling their talents, their future tied to the stock market instead of their collective efforts. Since you've published the book, obviously a lot has happened, including the resurrection of working class identity in very different forms with Bernie and with Trump and both of those two figures standing in for bigger things. In both cases, the New Deal or New Deal order has returned as a reference point. On on the left, we have the Green New Deal and a desire to resurrect a certain sort of state involvement in the economy. And then with Trump and Trumpism, I think there's a powerful invocation of the lost New Deal order's masculinized single earner family wage ideal, but critically it's just invoked as a sort of wounded nostalgia without any of the New Deal's redistributive economics. What what do you make of the New Deal's place in today's politics? I think it's interesting. This book was published in uh, 2009, early 2009, right around the time of Obama's inauguration, actually. And, and there was a lot of talk of a, a new New Deal, of course, at that moment in the aftermath of the... the 
panic of 2008. And then, you know, in the context of the pandemic, there's been a lot of reference around the New Deal. And then, yes, I think you're absolutely right that Trump and Trumpism is also calling back something of the, yeah, kind of a, a, a patriarchal and suburban vision of mass working class prosperity that seems to be gone. Um, and there's not much analysis of where is it gone other than competition from immigrants or in some cases capital flight, but it's not fleshed out. Where did it go? But nonetheless, it's really calling on that. I think that in all of these cases, though, that there is maybe a little bit too much presentation of the New Deal as this unified thing um, and as this as a, a uh, not not as something that was the synthesis and bringing together of all of these different political strands. And there's not enough of a sense of the degree and the extent to which it was intensely contested, uh, both at the time and afterward, and how something that looked like it might be quite secure and quite supreme, actually, you know, in any political moment, there are these different competing strands of ideas and mobilization and influence. And so I think that that's one, um, you know, one problem of invoking the vision of the New Deal is that it's, it can make something appear to be more the product of consensus than it really was, you know, either, either in the 30s or in the, the subsequent period. A lot has changed since the early aughts when you were writing the book, both in terms of the politics, which we've talked some about, and also the scholarship, which we discussed a little at the top of the show. What would you do differently if you wrote the book today? <laughs> um, well, I don't think I, I'm not sure I would do anything differently to this particular book, um, but I, I do think there are. It's it's difficult to well it's it's hard to actually it, it's kind of an entity unto itself. There are things that I feel critical of in it, but I don't know if I could actually do them any differently than they were done without it being a totally different book. But I, I do think that in the you know in Invisible Hands, it probably the the it, it doesn't uh, address enough of the material basis of the. American economy, and that it would have been good to do more to place the campaigns that these business activists were waging against the backdrop of the broader shifts in the material life of the country. And that this became especially clear in and around the 70s to me, or going back to it, is that it's a little bit, there's something you can't, while it, one of the strengths of the book is that it shows the depth of these conservative institutions of the American Enterprise Institute, of heritage, of the, the roots of the free market ideas. I mean, the way that it shows those going back and not just kind of emerging up in the 1970s. Um, so that's a strength of the book is the, the linear quality that it has. But on the, it's also a problem because it doesn't give enough sense of kind of what changed or why did things change? How did they change in the 70s? 
And I think it would have been good to address more deeply deindustrialization, the extent to which the manufacturing companies that had been sort of the backbone of this mobilization felt challenged by competition from abroad in the 70s, the the greater changes of the the 70s and of that moment would have been good to to find a way to develop more fully. And then second, I don't know exactly, I mean, I think that probably the most important development in the scholarship on the right since the Invisible Hands um, is the emergence of a much larger body of work on the far right and on the relationships between the racist, anti-Semitic, conspiratorial right and the more mainstream parts of the movement and the way that they bleed into each other and and do so on lots of different ways and and uh, dimensions. I think that in Invisible Hands, one of the things that I was really interested in was showing how all of these one of the things the book is dealing with is how people who have economic power manage to translate that into political action. And so as a result, I was very interested in people who you can see have some kind of social and political power. And so I, people who were more at the margins were not really the subject of the book. But I think a lot of this recent scholarship has shown the importance of thinking about some of those figures and the relationships that they might have, and both the distance that they have and the relationship that they have to the mainstream. Right. And then finally, I think one point about Invisible Hands is that it kind of took shape. I think I had thought of it at first as being a bit more uh, bipartisan than in some ways it turned out to be. And I think the influence of business organizing on the Democrats, the shifts in the Democratic Party during the 70s and afterward, the public-private partnerships and the reliance of the Democrats on those as well in the post-New Deal years, all of those are things that are touched on a bit in the book, but they aren't. um, There's been a lot of work on that aspect of political change as well since this book was written. I'll be talking to Lily Geismer soon about her new book on the New Democrats. Yeah, so Lily, her, her work is definitely one of those, and both, both the new book and also her first book, um, Don't Blame Us, <laughs> um, about sort of New Democrats in Massachusetts. So, so thinking about, it's like the question, why did the country move to the right? You can think about that in terms of the insurgent power of the conservative movement, or you can think about it in terms of the whole spectrum of politics and, you know, the relationship between different strands of it and the changes in liberalism as well. And so I think that's another, I don't, Invisible Hands could not really have dealt with that without being a really different book than what it was. But I think that's another, both been a really important area of the scholarship. And yeah, I mean, and then also some of the a lot of the work that's been done criticizing uh, post-war liberalism and the rise of mass incarceration and the carceral state and the deep 
kind of implication of post-war liberals in building those institutions of repression and maintaining racial hierarchies. This too is, it's a, a different story than what Invisible Hands is doing, but I think it's, you know, just an incredibly important part of thinking about the post, the, the political landscape. And if I were somehow writing a, a totally different book that covered the same ground, I would probably try to address some of these issues in it now, if you start it all over again. But I think, um, yeah, you know, one of the interesting things about writing a book and being done with a book is that you're never really exactly done with it. It continues to be a, you know, a, a living force inside of you that you're in conversation with long after it's technically finished and published and out in the world. And I think it, it's like a, a, a dialogue that, that goes on. And so, I mean, Invisible Hands was a book shaped both by the methodology of focusing on these archives of business people and conservative activists and tracing out the networks between them and and also on the particular historical moment of free market triumphalism that it came out of and trying to explain that. And so I think those those things together account for a big part of why the book took the shape that it did. Well, it's still an incredibly useful book and like all of your work, incredibly well-written. Kim Phillips Fine, thank you very much. Thank you again so much for having me. Kim Phillips Fine is a professor at the Gallatin School of Individualized Study and the History Department of the College of Arts and Sciences at New York University. She's the author of Fear City, New York's Fiscal Crisis and the Rise of Austerity Politics, and Invisible Hands, The Making of the Conservative Movement from the New Deal to Reagan. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that every demand for the most simple bourgeois financial reform, for the most ordinary liberalism, for the most commonplace republicanism, for the flattest democracy, is forthwith punished as an assault upon society and is branded as socialism. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis and recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Tamuz Frankel and Gemma Sack. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please also leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners, but what really and truly does that is you telling your friends about the podcast, why you listen to it, why they should listen to it, why you like it, why they might like it, etc. Please make propaganda for us, and do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this podcast up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge.